Chapter 31 of Will Warburton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Will Warburton by George Gissing. Chapter 31. Behind his counter next morning, Will thought over Sherwood's story and laughed to himself wonderingly. Not that any freak of his old partner's, of the man whom he had once regarded as, above all, practical and energetic, could now surprise him, but it seemed astonishing that Godfrey should have persuaded a man of solid means, even a Celt, to pledge himself to such an enterprise. Was the story true? Did Milligan really exist? If any doubt were possible on this point, did it not also throw suspicion on the story of Strangwin and the ten thousand pounds? Will grew serious at the reflection. He had never conceived a moment's distrust of Sherwood's honesty, nor did his misgiving now take that form. The question which troubled him throughout today was whether Godfrey Sherwood might be a victim of delusions. Certainly he had a very strange look. That haggard face, those brilliant eyes. So disquieting was the suspicion that, at closing time, Will could no longer resist an impulse to betake himself to Morley's hotel. Sherwood had said that Milligan was there only for a few days, until the wealthy Irishman could find a furnished house suitable to his needs whilst he remained in London. Arrived at the hotel, he inquired for his friend. Sherwood had dined and gone out. Will hesitated a moment, then asked whether Mr. Milligan was to be seen. Mr. Milligan, he learnt, had gone out with Mr. Sherwood. So Milligan did exist. Will's relief at settling this point banished his doubts on all the others. He turned westward again, and through a night of soft, warm rain, walked all the way to his lodgings. On the third day after, late in the evening, Sherwood paid him a second visit. Godfrey was in high spirits. He announced that Milligan had taken a house near the Marble Arch, where he also, as secretary, would have his quarters, and that already a meeting had been convened of the leading London vegetarians. Things were splendidly in train. Then he produced an evening newspaper, with a paragraph which spoke of the serious illness of Mr. Strangwin. Recovery, it was said, could hardly be hoped for. "'What's more?' cried Sherwood. "'I've seen Ted Strangwin himself. Nobody could behave better. The old man, he assured me, couldn't last more than a day or two, and he promised—' quite spontaneously, I didn't say a word, to pay his debt in full as soon as ever his father's will was proved, which will be done as quickly as possible. And now, have you thought over what I said the other night? Thought? Yes. With not much result, I see. Never mind. You must have time. I want you to meet Milligan. Could you come to lunch next Sunday? He invites you. Warburton shook his head. He had never cared for the acquaintance of rich men, and was less than ever disposed to sit at their tables. 
all his anxieties regarding Sherwood's mental condition having been set at rest, he would go on with his grocer's life as long as need be, strengthened with the hope that shone before him. The end of July had come. After a week of rain, the weather had turned bright, with a coolness at morning and evening, very pleasant at this time of year in London streets. Warburton had business in the city, which he must needs see to personally. He was on the point of leaving the shop, dressed as became a respectable citizen, silk hat and all, when in the doorway appeared Miss Bertha Cross. A certain surprise marked her smile of recognition. It meant, no doubt, that, never before having seen Mr. Jolliman, save bareheaded and aproned, she was struck with the change in his aspect when thus equipped for going abroad. Immediately Mr. Jolliman doffed his hat and stepped behind the counter. "'Please don't let me keep you,' said Bertha, with a glance toward Alchin, who was making parcels at the back of the shop. "'I only want some, some matches and one or two trifling things.' Never had she seemed so embarrassed in making a purchase. Her eyes fell, and she half turned away. Mr. Jolliman appeared to hesitate, he also glancing towards Alchin. But the young lady quickly recovered herself, and, taking up a packet of something exhibited on the counter, asked its price. The awkwardness was at an end. Bertha made her purchases, paid for them, and then left the shop as usual. It was by the last post on the evening after this day that Warburton received a letter of which the exterior puzzled him. Whose could be this graceful, delicate hand? A woman's, doubtless. Yet he had no female correspondent, save those who wrote from St. Neots. The postmark was London. He opened. Dear Mr. Warburton, a glance over the leaf showed him, Sincerely yours. Rosamond Elvin. Hmm. Dear Mr. Warburton, I am settled in my lodgings here and getting seriously to work. It has occurred to me that you might be able to suggest some quaint corner of old London, unknown to me, which would make a good subject for a watercolour. London has been, I am sure, far too much neglected by artists. If I could mark out a claim here, as the colonists say, I should be lucky. For the present, I'm just sketching, to get my hand in, about Chelsea. Tomorrow afternoon, about six o'clock, if this exquisite mellow weather continues, I shall be on the embankment in Battersea Park, near the Albert Bridge, where I want to catch a certain effect of sky and water. That was all. And what exactly did it mean? Warburton's practical knowledge of women did not carry him very far, but he was wont to theorise at large on the subject, and in this instance it seemed to him that one of his favourite generalities found neat application. Miss Elvin had in a high degree the feminine characteristic of not knowing her own mind. Finding herself without substantial means, she of course meant to marry, and it was natural that she should think of marrying Norbert Franks. Yet she could not feel at all sure that she wished to do so. Neither was she perfectly certain that Franks would again offer her the choice. In this state of doubt, she inclined to cultivate the acquaintance of Franks' intimate friend, 
knowing that she might thus, very probably, gather hints as to the artist's state of mind, and, if it seemed good to her, could indirectly convey to him a suggestion of her own. Warburton concluded, then, that he was simply being made use of by this typical young lady. That point settled, he willingly lent himself to her device, for he desired nothing better than to see Franks lured back to the old allegiance and away from the house at Wallam Green. So before going to bed, he posted a reply to Miss Elvin's letter, saying that he should much like a talk with her about the artistic possibilities of obscure London, and that he would walk next day along the Battersea Embankment with the hope of meeting her. And thus it came to pass. Through the morning there were showers, but about noon a breeze swept the sky fair, and softly glowing summer reigned over the rest of the day. In his mood of hopefulness, Warburton had no scruple about abandoning the shop at tea-time. He did not even trouble himself to invent a decorous excuse, but told Alchin plainly that he thought he would have a walk. His henchman, who of late had always seemed rather pleased than otherwise when Warburton absented himself, loudly approved the idea. "'Don't you hurry back, sir. There'll be no business that I can't manage. Don't you think of hurrying? The air'll do you good.' As he walked away, Will said to himself that no doubt Alchin would only be too glad of a chance of managing the business independently and that perhaps he hoped for the voluntary retirement of Mr. Jolliman one of these days. Indeed, things were likely to take that course, and Alchin was a good, honest fellow, whom it would be a pleasure to see flourishing. How much longer would old Strangwin cumber the world? With more elasticity than usual in his rapid stride, Will passed out of Fulham Road into King's Road, and down to the river at Cheney Walk whence his eye perceived a sitting figure on the opposite bank. He crossed Albert Bridge. He stepped down into the park. He drew near to the young lady in grey trimmed with black, who was at work upon a drawing. Not until he spoke did she seem aware of his arrival. Then, with her brightest smile of welcome, she held out a pretty hand, and in her melodious voice thanked him for so kindly taking the trouble to come. Don't look at this, she added. It's too difficult. I can't get it right. What his glance discovered on the block did not strengthen Will's confidence in Rosamond's claim to be a serious artist. He had always taken for granted that her work was amateurish and that she had little chance of living by it. On the whole, he felt glad to be confirmed in this view. Rosamond, as an incompetent, was more interesting to him than if she had given proof of great ability. "'I mustn't be too ambitious,' she was saying. "'The river suggests dangerous comparisons. "'I want to find little corners of the town "'such as no one ever thought of painting.' "'Unless it was Norbert Franks,' said Will genially, "'leaning on his stick with both hands "'and looking over her head. "'Yes, I had almost forgotten,' she answered with a thoughtful smile. "'Those days he did some very good things.' some remarkably good things. Of course, you know the story of how he and I first met. Oh, yes, early morning, a quiet little street, I remember. Where was that? Over yonder, 
Will nodded southward. I hope he'll take that up again some day. Oh, but let me do it first, exclaimed Rosamond, laughing. You mustn't rob me of my chance, Mr. Warburton. Norbert Franks is successful and rich. I'm going to be. I'm a poor struggler. Of course, in painting London, it's atmosphere one has to try for above all. Our sky gives value, now and then, to forms which in themselves are utterly uninteresting. Exactly what Franks used to say to me. There was a thing I wanted him to try, but then came the revolution. It was the long London street, after a hot, fine day, just when the lamps have been lit. Have you noticed how golden the lights are? I remember standing for a long time at the end of Harley Street, enjoying that effect. Franks was going to try it. But then came the revolution. For which, you mean, Mr. Warburton, I was to blame. Rosamond spoke in a very low voice, and a very sweet. Her head bent. Why, yes, replied Will, in the tone of corresponding masculinity. Though I shouldn't myself have used that word. You, no doubt, were the cause of what happened, and so, in a sense, to blame for it. But I know it couldn't be helped. Indeed, it couldn't, declared Rosamond, raising her eyes a little and looking across the river. She had not in the least the air of a coquette, impossible to associate any such trivial idea with Rosamond's habitual seriousness of bearing, and with the stamp of her features, which added some subtle charm to regularity and refinement. By temper critical, and especially disposed to mistrustful scrutiny by the present circumstances, Warburton was yet unable to resist the softening influence of this quintessential womanhood. In a certain degree, he had submitted to it during that holiday among the Alps. Then, on the whole, he inclined to regard Rosamond impatiently, and with slighting tolerance. Now that he desired to mark her good qualities, and so justify himself in the endeavour to renew her conquest of Norbert Franks, he exposed himself to whatever peril might lie in her singular friendliness. True, no sense of danger occurred to him, and for that very reason his state was the more precarious. You have seen him lately at Ashstead, was his next remark. More than once, and I can't tell you how glad we were to see each other. I knew in a moment that he had really forgiven me, and I have always wanted to be assured of that. How thoroughly good and straightforward he is. I'm sure we shall be friends all our lives. I agree with you, he said, that there's no better fellow living. Till now, I can't see a sign of his being spoilt by success. And spoilt in the worst sense, I don't think he ever will be, happen what may. There's a simplicity about him which makes his safeguard. But as for his painting, well, I can't be so sure. I know little or nothing about it, but it's plain that he no longer takes his work very seriously. It pleases people. They pay large prices for it. Where's the harm? Still, if he had someone to keep a higher ideal before him, he broke off with a vague gesture. Rosamond looked up at him. We must try, she said with quiet earnestness. Oh, I don't know that I'm any use, replied Will with a laugh. I speak with no authority. But you, 
Yes, you might do much, more than anyone else possibly could. That is exaggerating, Mr. Warburton, said Rosamond. Even in the old days, my influence didn't go for much. You speak of the revolution caused by, by what happened, but the truth is that the revolution had begun before that. Remember, I saw sanctuary while he was painting it, and, but we won't talk of that. To tell you the truth, returned Warburton, meeting her eyes steadily with his pleasantest look, I saw no harm in Sanctuary. I think he was quite right to do what he could to earn money. He wanted to be married. He had waited quite long enough. If he hadn't done something of the kind, I should have doubted whether he was very much in earnest. No, no, what I call the revolution began when he had lost all hope. At the time, he would have given up painting altogether, I believe. If it hadn't been that he owed me money and knew I wanted it, Rosamond made a quick movement of interest. I never heard about that. Franks wouldn't talk about it, be sure. He saw me in a hobble. I lost everything at all at once, and he went to work like a brick to get money for me. And that, when he felt more disposed to poison himself than to paint. Do you think I should criticise the work he did under these circumstances? No, indeed. Thank you, Mr. Warburton, for telling me that story. How exquisite London is at this time of the year, Rosamond murmured, as having declared it was time to be walking homewards, they walked slowly towards the bridge. I am glad not to be going away. Look at that lovely sky. Look at the tones of those houses. Oh, I must make use of it all. Real use, I mean. A splendid material for art, not only for money-making. Do advise me, Mr. Warburton. Where shall I go to look for bits? Walking with bent head, Will reflected. Do you know Camberwell? he asked. There are good little corners. I don't know it at all. Could you? I'm afraid to ask. You couldn't spare time. Oh, yes, easily. That is to say, during certain hours. On Monday, say, in the afternoon? Yes. How kind of you, murmured Rosamond. If I were only an amateur, amusing myself, I couldn't give you the trouble. But it's serious. You must earn money before long. You see, there's nothing else I can do. My sister, you know I have a sister, she has taken to teaching. She is at Saint-Jean-de-Luz. But I'm no use for anything of that kind. I must be independent. Why do you smile? Not at you, but at myself. I used to say the same thing, but I had no talent of any kind, and when the smash came, they were crossing the bridge. Will looked westward in the direction of his shop, and it struck him how amusing it would be to startle Rosamond by a disclosure of his social status. Would she still be anxious for his company in search of the picturesque? He could not feel sure. Curiosity urged him to try the experiment but an obscure apprehension closed his lips. "'How very hard for you,' sighed Rosamond. "'But don't think,' she added quickly, "'that I have a weak dread of poverty. Not at all, so long as one can support oneself. Nowadays, when everyone strives and battles for money, there is a distinction in doing without it.' Five minutes more, and they were in Oakley Crescent. 
Rosamond paused before reaching the house in which she dwelt, took the camp-stool from her companion, and offered her hand for good-bye. Only then did Warburton become aware that he had said nothing since that remark of hers about poverty. He had walked in a dream. End of chapter 31